Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, so, Ben, you look like you're like coming to us live from, it's not a train car, but it's like a wood paneled room with a light. It, it could be a hotel. It could be a prison generic. for all I know. It is a hotel. It is a hotel room in New York City. Of the type that only New York has, these kind of old deco era, dingy, very small hotel rooms that uh, get treated as quaint and therefore, you know, desirable. Actually, it's not really quaint. <laughs> You're really selling it. it. It's, it's just a shitty hotel room. <laughs> That's why I love this trend in New York of having deliberately tiny hotel rooms. Like there's that one that you have to share a bathroom. It's basically like a youth hostel, but it but it's designed to look really hip and environmentally friendly. Wow. Hopefully you have a toilet. This one, you know, is kind of first half of the of the century and they've filled it with, you know, unattractive mid-century modern furniture like i love mid-century modern furniture but this stuff is not here i'm showing i'm showing you the wardrobe here oh, oh yeah God. no yeah, that's that just ugly <laughs> my eyes have seen enough and you know and it's really? like it's a good shtick but <clears throat> if the question is do i recommend it the answer is no your little sleeper cabin on amtrak was much nicer Ay, ay, ay. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Beam Me Up edition. The edition that Shane has been waiting for. Oh, my goodness. For so long. For so long. This feels like a victory lap. It feels like a homecoming. <laughs> it's like it's like Christmas and the Fourth of July. <laughs> it just was the Fourth of July. I've all together. Sing UFO music. Ba ba bum bum bum. <laughs> at various well, times during do come. The They're not segment. staying at your hotel. I'll tell you that. <laughs> bum bum ba bum bum ba bum bum ba bum. No, that's right. no, it would be so much cooler. If you... Okay, that's enough out of you, Mister. That's enough. We only have an hour for this. Oh my gosh, we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about you know what about UFOs. It's gonna happen, people. I'm here with my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis and Ben Wittis from his prison car, whatever he's sleeping in in New York. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Are you Shane. eating too? Good eating, lord. Eating Amish pickled. Yeah, you need to you need to mute while Pickled you're eating. String beans. Just, Seriously. I'm on behalf of all of our listeners with misophonia, mute <laughs> right now. <laughs> on the podcast this week, at long last, the director of national intelligence releases its findings about what else? UFOs. You remember UFOs. 
The Trump Organization and its chief financial officers are accused of a 15-year tax fraud scheme. So that also happened when we were off last week. And Russian hackers are at it again, this time launching possibly the largest ransomware attack as well as a strike against the Republican National Committee, or at least one of its contractors. Uh, And I invite you all to stick around, too, for a special object lessons. Don't skip object lessons this week, people. Uh, we'll have more to say about that later. You really don't want to miss the object lesson this week, people. I'm just saying you. Re- there's only one object lesson, and you really don't want to miss it. Yeah, stick around. All right, let's start with my happy, happy report. The director of national intelligence is says the U.S. government is unable to explain more than 140 unidentified flying objects mostly recorded by military pilots and other military radar and sensors. And it finds no evidence of alien life, although it doesn't rule it out entirely. I think the big news for me from this report, which we had been pretty well forecast in in stories that had come out prior to this, uh, was that you have of these 144 cases that were examined by a task force set up, the so-called Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force or UAP Task Force. Only one of them could they conclusively conclude what it was, and it was a deflated balloon. So just kind of like air debris, basically. Um, but the report, while it doesn't provide details about these individual incidents, uh, it, it does go on to try and categorize them into you know different groups of what they might be. It says they could be debris in the air. It says they could be, you know, weather phenomenon. So light or water playing tricks on sensors could be U.S. government technology, although that seems unlikely. We can talk about why. It could be foreign adversary technology, which would be concerning. And then there's this fifth category, uh, frustratingly to me, (laughs) called other. So, you know, when you don't know what it is, just to say heptapod, heptapod, it's totally heptapod. So, Tammy, let me come to you first. I mean, obviously, the report doesn't find evidence that extraterrestrials have visited the Earth. And to be very clear, no one expected that it would. We should also emphasize, too, that was in no way the mandate of this task force. Like, they didn't go to them and say, are these aliens? That wasn't the job. But it does find evidence that objects that our government and our military cannot identify are flying around in our airspace and near our military equipment, that there's there's something there. There's an ident- unidentified aerial phenomenon. And that seems like a pretty big concern. The report even calls these threats. So how are you thinking about these findings in a national security context? Or, or are you? Okay. Well, look, close encounters jokes aside and conspiracy theories aside, there is something going on here. We have 144 incidents where something happened or something was observed by U.S. military personnel, and we don't know what it was. Were they actually flying objects in the first place? We don't even know that. So of the five possibilities that these phenomena could fall into, and Shane, you you laid those out well, only two of them have any national security implications. They all have scientific implications. Um, But, you know, only if they are craft belonging to foreign adversaries, either attack aircraft or surveillance aircraft or, you know, something like that, or aliens 
those would have national security implications. But, you know, the likelihood is that that it's neither of those things. And why do I say that? Because you have 144 incidents, some of them, as it turns out, only a very small percentage, only 18 cases where the, the things that were seen behaved in a way that seemed not to you know, be congruent with the laws of physics. There are most of these cases are like things that we would expect to see in the way that things fly around in the air. They could be sensor errors. They could be ice crystals. They could be the light refracting off a cloud or off the ocean in a weird way. None of that is important. That's like the world is wide. That stuff is going to happen. And so in those 18 cases where the supposed craft that were observed seem to be defying the laws of physics, to me, those are the likeliest cases of an atmospheric phenomenon, you know, an ice crystal, a light beam, or a sensor mistake. Occam's razor tells us that those 18 cases are likely just mistakes or misunderstandings or mischaracterizations, not UFOs. That said, I do think there's something worth focusing on here, which is, number one, that most of the cases, these things are flying in a way that you expect things to fly, which means they are likely real, uh, and we don't know what they are. And to put this in a bigger context, you know, not only the United States has been experimenting with all kinds of unmanned aerial vehicles, but other countries have and non-state actors have, you know, not only Russia and Iran and China, but in the most recent war between Israel and Hamas, Hamas used UAVs as well as these incendiary balloons, basically weather balloon type equipment with Molotov cocktails attached. And so we know that there is innovation going on in this area. And I think the import of this kind of report is not, oh, my God, there might be alien life. I think that's the least interesting possibility and the least likely. I think the most important thing is that we focus on the, the incidents that can be explained by physics and try to figure out if any of them represent adversary technology that we haven't yet seen and identified. So I want to disagree on one point, which is that I actually don't think the possibility of aliens raises national security issues. I think if you hypothesize that these 18 incidents involve aliens, it is super unlikely that those aliens have a problem with the United States as opposed to Bolivia, right? They're either okay, here. So they have global security implications. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think it, the, the likelihood that the aliens, if aliens there are, are like anti-American aliens as opposed to, you know, against human civilization strikes me as pretty remote. And by the way, if you hypothesize that these are alien aircraft, it's not clear that they're belligerent at all. They might just, you know, be coming to, you know, hang out and barbecue stuff with us. And so I, I think it's actually not 
a useful national security is not a particularly useful framework to think about aliens. The right framework to think about aliens is a little bit more, I think, either a global security, you know, future of the species, kind of like climate change, sort of um, only at very fast paced, or scientific discovery. But I, I think once you once you make the jump to aliens, I think realistically you're out of the national security zone. I completely agree with Tamara that conversely, the real issue here, if you're not going to assume that 18 unexplained incidents equals aliens, the real issue here is the number of unexplained incidents complying or not complying with the laws of physics that the military cannot tell you is advanced adversary aircraft. And I don't know what to make of that, but I do think it suggests that there's an intelligence challenge on the hypersonic aircraft front that we need to think about whether we're spooking ourselves into believing that the adversaries are developing super high-tech aircraft, or conversely, whether they are and we really don't have any visibility into it. I think those are the real interesting questions here. I want to pick up on that last piece, too. And one thing I wonder is, is there a world in which this report actually does more harm than good? Which is to say, it kind of allows the military to sort of shrug and go, don't know, could be anything. And when and, and if it could be anything, is that the actually that the Russians have developed some kind of hypersonic, like, I won't say stealth-like, but like highly dynamic aircraft, and or maybe one that goes underwater. And, and by the way, the, the report doesn't seem to mention that some of these things have apparently gone under the water. You know, is it sort of letting the military off the hook a little bit? I mean, to say like, well, this isn't really necessarily worthy of further study. There are just some things that I guess are unexplained. I don't know. I mean, they, the report, the task force does say with more money and more resources, we could devote more attention to trying to find out what these things are. But that sounds like exactly what you would expect them to say. Like, that's like the easiest thing to say at the end of this. And what's not clear to me is, has there been, you know, a kind of a fire lit under the butt of the military or the intelligence community to say, you know, put the alien conversation aside, like you really need to find out what the hell this thing is, because if it's something that operates well beyond the envelope of our understanding. I mean, wow, is that that's a massive intelligence failure, I think, Tammy. Yeah, look, I feel like we're conflating two things here. Like I said, the 18 incidents where these things are moving in ways we don't understand are a tiny, tiny minority of these incidents. They're probably some. It's 18 incidents, though. It's okay. So, not a tiny, tiny minority. 10%, 11%. It's not a significant percent. So, we're not talking about like a massive, you know, fleet of uh, new Russian technology that uh, defies the apparent law of physics. We are talking about lots of incidents of engagement with things that probably do follow the law of physics and might be Russian technology. And to me, that's what we should be focusing on. And so I I think we should not be so concerned about the idea that there's 
you know, that there are objects behaving in ways we don't understand. I think we should assume that there are objects behaving in ways we do understand and we need to figure out what they are. To me, the most important line in your story, Shane, was the one that said they couldn't figure out what they are because of a lack of data. And I think you're absolutely right. What comes through clearly is that the military simply hasn't invested many resources in collecting data. And they haven't been asking Navy pilots who see most of these things out over the water to collect that data. So there's an obvious follow-up task here. Yeah, and I think and that's, I guess, to their credit, I mean, at ODNI and the and Naval Intelligence, like this is a very sober piece of analysis. They do not get over their skis in any way, which is smart because they're looking at it right and saying, look, we're just going to assess the data that we have. We're certainly not going to leap to any conclusions when we know what everyone is thinking about this particular topic. And if we want to look at this more, okay, let's look at it more. But yeah, you, and the lack of data, I mean, it's always been a problem with these kinds of sightings, right? I mean, it's your uncle Bob who saw lights in the sky and grabbed his Polaroid, right? I mean, it's like, this is the, the history of these sightings is, you know, is, is not necessarily data rich and it can be wildly inconsistent. So, you know, credit to the people who did this report for saying, we're just working with what you gave us. And to Ben's point, I just have to quote Clark Kent, i.e. Superman, speaking to General Stanwick. He says, you can't control me, General, and you never will. But that doesn't mean I'm your enemy. There you go. Oh, I like that. I like that. There's an issue about this report that I want to raise, uh, and I want to do it in a delicate fashion. In a prior episode of Rational Security, I proposed a policy toward unidentified alien or foreign adversary aircraft, which is was a three-word policy, shoot them down. I have gotten some pushback on this um, from shall we say, people in the know who have said <laughs> that it is not constructive for me, to, for me to be advocating that. I want to double down on it now the, that the report is out. <laughs> I think our policy should be, um, uh, if we can't identify it and it does not respond to reasonable you know, requests to stay out of our airspace, Shoot it the fuck down. I, I think the the shoot them down uh, mantra or chant should replace like build the wall, uh, and it should be the new oh, no. the new oh, thing. Ambitions here. Wow, this is really you're really setting the bar very high. This is going to be your political movement, you and Marianne Williams. The heptapods won't be able to teach us how to think our way back and forward through time if we shoot them down. Dude, the heptapods in the movie identified themselves. It was clear that they came in peace. I'm if if well, that was not clear. If if all heptapods up there, you know, want to come down and hang with us and barbecue stuff and teach us, you know, forward and backward thinking. I'm, I'm totally down for that. I'm talking about the unidentified shit with the movement in different directions okay. that you can't tell if it's a Russian hypersonic plane or a heptapod. I'm telling you, heptapods, identify yourselves and we got no problem. Get a heptapod button for sale in the rational security store. Well, it may be a lack of data that prevented the intelligence community from reaching a definitive conclusion 
about what exactly these craft are. But I'm just going to posit that if the Trump organization were keeping the data, it would be very rich because apparently the Trump organization keeps <laughs> spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. Well, and, and spreadsheets Two for public purposes and then not <laughs> so public purposes. Public purposes, where we list all of the fringe benefits on which their chief financial officer allegedly did not pay any taxes, which is also known as a crime. Uh, reading here from the coverage of a week ago, we uh, obviously we were off last week, so we didn't get to chew this one over. Prosecutors charged former President Donald Trump's business with a 15-year, quote, scheme to defraud the government and charged its chief financial officer with grand larceny and tax fraud in a Manhattan courtroom, describing what they said was a wide-ranging effort to hide income tax from authorities. In the charging papers, prosecutors alleged that the Trump Organization effectively kept two sets of books. In one, for internal use, it carefully tallied the values of benefits given to executives as part of their compensation, apartments, cars, furniture, tuition, payments, even money for holiday gifts. But in the documents that the Trump Organization sent to tax authorities, those are the people you don't lie to, remember, prosecutors said those benefits were omitted. Prosecutors said the result was the Trump Organization and its executives avoided taxes on their full compensation. CFO Alan Weisselberg, they said, avoided paying more than $900,000. So, you know, two sets of books, not customary business practice. So people are saying, um, Ben, I want to come to you first on this. There seem to be two schools of thought on these indictments now. And we'll remember that people were for months, you know, speculating that indictments were coming. They were coming. The grand jury's been impaneled, et cetera. One school of thought, and maybe there are more, but like one big one is that these indictments are really not all that impressive. These charges allege failure to pay taxes on fringe benefits, which, of course, is a crime. But I think some experts have said at least it's not one that's routinely prosecuted or maybe you don't hear about it very often. And obviously, lots of executives do get fringe benefits. Presumably not all of them are reporting them. Um, and in terms of the crimes that have been suggested or alleged in news reporting about the Trump organization, I'm thinking particularly about the massive, you know, New York Times story, uh, for instance, on uh, Trump's taxes or my colleague, David Farenthold, who's been writing for years about the Trump charity. You know, I think some people were thinking this is small potatoes, like this is all you got after everything. On the other hand, of course, it's alleged that Weisselberg failed to pay nearly a million dollars in taxes. He was their chief accountant, effectively. So presumably he knew that what he was doing uh, was wrong. So from a tax law perspective, right, this is kind of like a hell of a case. This is a this would be a big one, I think. So where are you coming down on this now that we've had you know, some time to digest this big deal, not big deal, signaling potentially bigger deal down the road? What do you think? Okay, so there are a number of different questions embedded in this in that question, and I actually want to treat them separately because when they get mushed together into how big a deal is this, it's actually asking you to privilege certain of those questions over certain others, and I just want to be transparent about the way I think about it. So first of all, the subject matter of this indictment, is it the kind of thing that I thought, you know, that caused me to be interested in the Trump organization as an investigative subject? The answer is absolutely not. I never doubted that there was, you know, a certain amount of tax cheating going on at the Trump organization. I'm not surprised to find that there is, that it's quite egregious. 
and that it's the sort of uh, thing that could produce an indictment, nor does that fundamentally change my view of Donald Trump at all. And I don't care about Alan Weisselberg enough to, other than that he's somebody who's loyally served the Trump family for a long time, his prosecution or non-prosecution is of no consequence to me whatsoever. So is it less than impressive from that point of view? Yeah, absolutely. If you'd told me at, at the beginning of this, when this was at the Supreme Court and we were all crowing about what a big deal this New York investigation was, that this is what would come from it, I would have said, oh, that's that's not all that interesting. So that's point number one. Point number two, which is a different question, which is, you know, is this tax fraud of the sort that uh, the state government of New York and the city government of New York City should be prosecuting? Or is it just the dreck they had at the end of a long witch hunt? The answer to that is, of course, it's worth prosecuting. And the people who are saying that this stuff doesn't typically get prosecuted are wrong. Uh, there are a, a few hundred of this kind of prosecution for for tax fraud kind of stuff at this rough, you know, at kind of this level a year. And some of them involve much lesser people than uh, the CFOs of, of big real estate holding entities in New York. What is true is that if Donald Trump weren't president, we probably wouldn't have ever known about this. It's often the case that this stuff doesn't get uncovered, but when it gets uncovered, it tends to get prosecuted. And it is simply untrue that there are not, when you have these kind of aggravating factors, like keeping separate books that, you know, that are really evocative of criminal intent. In fact, the federal government and state governments do prosecute this kind of stuff. So I don't think this is an example at all of a situation in which, you know, they basically are bringing a dregs case because it's all they have after a long investigation. The third point is we do not know that this is the terminus of this investigation. And it could be that the bigger stuff that we've all thought about at various times, the the giant uh, mis-evaluations uh, or disparate evaluations of property values for tax purposes versus for borrowing purposes, that that's an indictment that's yet to come, perhaps if prosecutors can secure uh, Weisselberg's cooperation, and we should really understand this as a pressure tactic on Weisselberg. Finally, it is a non-trivial matter, in my view, that the New York authorities were able to bring a crushing, and by the way, as a tax law matter, this stuff is devastating. Uh, so, you know, a very significant like set of tax allegations against the privately held corporation of the former president of the United States. And in this regard, the Weisselberg component of this indictment is less significant than the Trump organization component of this indictment. And I do think you mentioned David Farenhold, nobody except the New York Times reporters who were who did that giant tax fraud 30,000 word story a, a couple years ago is more vindicated by this indictment than David Farenhold. Granted, David was writing about other aspects of Trump organization and Trump world corruption, but the premise of 
David's work over the last few years has been the more deeply you dig in the Trump organization's actual conduct of routine business, the sketchier and dirtier it looks. And this is a vindication of that premise that I think is is substantial and important. And I think to all the reporters who spent the last few years scratching at the thesis that the Trump organization is a cesspool of corruption, I think they deserve a real tip of the hat at this point. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, so I certainly agree with Ben on that point. And, you know, the notion that a corporation that has engaged in a lot of shady practices, you know, going, let's go all the way back to that long New Yorker piece about the Trump organization's involvement in building a tower in Azerbaijan that might have also enabled some money laundering by Hezbollah, right? I mean, there's a lot of shady stuff that this organization has been involved in. That was by Adam Davidson. Thank you. You know, it's it's about time to see some legal accountability for that. I do think that part of like the press brouhaha over this and then the kind of deflated, is that all there is response to the charges reflects something I've raised before on the podcast, which is the desperate desire of many Americans and many in the media to see the sort of Hollywood ending of, you know, the criminal being let off in handcuffs saying, and I might have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those nosy kids, right? Like people want the Hollywood ending and there isn't a knockout blow for Trump except, hello, losing the presidential election. That was his knockout blow. And we have to sort of be happy with that. The system worked the way it should and move on and quit looking for the Hollywood ending. But I also think there's a question beyond the legal and beyond the political, which is what is the future of the Trump organization? Remember, this is a man whose entire career has been built on marketing his name. His name is his brand. His name has value. Running for president was good for his brand. And the way, he, the way he behaved in office and the way he left office have sullied that brand. This charge sullies that brand much, much further in the financial world, because the only way he has 
sustained the Trump organization is by borrowing money against the value of his name. And this makes that much, much harder. And I want to point to and ask for your, your comments on, you know, a really notable thread when the charges came out by Kurt Eichenwald, another New York Times uh, writer, I think, who pointed out that banks who give loans to companies include in the loan agreement a covenant that your books are accurate and that we get to examine your books at any time to make sure they're accurate. And this charge says, hello, the books aren't accurate, which means that every bank that has a loan with Trump Organization now has the right to inspect and potentially pull those loans. That means the Trump Organization is going to have incredible trouble refinancing its massive debt. And it will have two choices. It will either become insolvent or it will have to go to shady onto the black market for financial support to you know, Russian oligarchs or foreign governments or whatever. And so no matter what this means politically or in our minds for, for the Trump organization, this may be a real death blow. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a smart observation. And we should remember, too, that we know from other reporting at the New York Times, too, as well and elsewhere, that, I mean, Deutsche Bank effectively was the only bank left before Trump ran for office that was even willing to lend him money. And I, I agree with your point, Tammy, you know, that it's unimaginable to me now that any American bank, after it has been now provided with public evidence of accounting fraud, allegedly, and tax fraud, would loan the, these people money. I mean, I, I, maybe somebody would find a reason. Deutsche Bank's willingness to do so struck a lot of experts as pretty inexplicable. Yeah, but we'll see at this point, like, you know, you, you have been warned <laughs> so many times. Uh, ben? Yeah, there's one other important thing about the company being indicted, that there are various governments uh, have you know, exclusions of doing business with companies either under indictment or having been convicted of felonies. And, you know, the Trump organization has contracts with the federal government. It has contracts with the New York City government, with lots of local governments. And uh, having a criminal conviction can really muck with your ability to, you can get sort of debarred from all sorts of business. And so Tamara is absolutely right that that is a significant element of this, you know, even beyond their, their ability to get credit, which they clearly desperately need in an ongoing way. All right, let us move on to our next topic, which doesn't involve keeping books or records of aliens, sadly, of any kind. But it does kind of return us to a theme of recent weeks months, years, one near and dear to Trump's heart, Russia. That is just a weak transition on my part. We're going to talk here about the <laughs> Kessia. Am I saying it right? Kessia? You know, that's how Matt Tate pronounced it. I think that sounds a little too close to Kesha. And so I pronounce Kesha. it Kessia, but I, I, without any conviction that it's correct, I just don't really want want it to be confused with Kesha. So. Yeah, yeah or dollar sign ha, that. as she was called in season one of Glee. <laughs> Let's call it Kisiya. Kisiya. Anyway, I'm reading from our coverage here in the post. The software company at the center of a major ransomware attack uh, said on Tuesday that the hack affected between 800 and 1,500 small businesses, potentially making it the largest ransomware attack ever. 
uh, the aforementioned, not Kesha, sells software to help other companies manage their computer networks. And it confirmed that hackers broke into its system through a software vulnerability in its code. And Matt Tate, the aforementioned, also had a great piece over on Lawfare, which you should check out. I mean, arguing that this is a really big deal and that it's different in, in, in scope and in scale from previous ransomware attacks, which were pretty significant as well, because essentially the attackers got into this company's platform for delivering software to its customers and then used it to deliver ransomware to its customers. Uh, this was not all that dissimilar from the Solar Winds attack, where you kind of saw these so-called supply chain attacks being used. Um, I think that the hackers who are a Russian group called, I guess they're called Revil, not Revel, it's Revel, which is very cute. Or are based evil. in Russia. Are evil. Maybe it's are evil. What do they want? Like 45,000 bucks a pop to unlock them, but they'll do every one for the low bargain price of $70 million. They'll let everyone go. So that's an interesting feature of this. Also came news this week that a contractor for the Republican National Committee uh, was apparently hacked, although it's not clear anything was stolen by Russian intelligence. Uh, so our old friends from 2016, was it Cozy Bear? It was Cozy Bear, not Fancy Bear, I think, uh, who are at those old tricks again. Tammy, it seems to me like these two events kind of perfectly capture the dilemma when it comes to hacking from Russia. With Kessia, you have the work of a Russian cyber criminal organization with this attack on the RNC contractor, which we can, I think, read as kind of a more politically more motivated espionage shell attack, you have the work of Russian intelligence service. So the lines between those two worlds in Russia, of course, are very blurry, and those worlds overlap and intermingle a fair amount. So how does the U.S. and the Biden administration, you think, begin to think about, or maybe it's maybe maybe it's a more beyond government strategy, approaching this problem, which has law enforcement and foreign policy dimensions. I mean, can you try to treat it all at once or do you have to disaggregate it to get at it? Yeah, Shane, I, I think that's a really important and really difficult question to answer because it sort of depends on how you assess or how you analyze the Russian government and Vladimir Putin. If you see Putin's Russian government as essentially, you know, a, a national leadership that is basically about its own enrichment and is not simply corrupt, but is itself a vehicle of corruption, then you treat it all as the same thing. Then the fact that you have these criminal organizations inside Russia conducting cyber attacks against organizations in other countries it's not just allowed by the Russian state. If the Russian state is itself a corrupt criminal organization, then it's part and parcel of being in the Russian state. And you hold the Russian state completely accountable for the actions of these cyber criminals. But if you look at it you know, from a sort of a standard high politics diplomacy lens, you say, well, this is a private actor. And the Russian government is a government actor. So we will expect this government actor to um, take steps to control illegality taking place within its borders, you know, and defer to it to take action. It's not entirely clear to me, to be honest, what that debate looks like inside the Biden administration. 
But it's clear that Biden, in his meeting with Putin a few weeks ago, tried to sort of bridge these two approaches, basically saying, you know, look, there's criminality going on in your country and you're a government, so we expect you to handle that. But, you know, we also expect you to to actually get it done and make this stop. And if you don't, we will respond. And what Biden has said publicly, which is only a very little, about how the U.S. would respond if Putin crosses his so-called red lines on, for example, interfering with America's uh, elections infrastructure or critical infrastructure or things like that. He said we would respond with cyber. So that's sort of a military response. That's the dilemma. Do you, you know, do you treat it as a law enforcement matter or do you treat it as a state to state matter where there's potential for escalation? And I think in some ways, this challenge with the cyber actors is analogous to a challenge that the U.S. has been facing for years with the Wagner Group, this sort of shady collection of mercenaries and arms suppliers who are linked to the guy known as Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prizgovin, um, that's been active, including against American targets and American partners in Syria, but they've also been active in Libya and, uh, and in Africa and other places. And, you know, they are not officially part of the Russian government, but they seem to operate sometimes in ways that support the goals of the Russian government. Do we hold the Russian government accountable for the Wagner Group or not? This seems to be the modus operandi of, of Putin, is this kind of ambiguity using sub-state actors that have some degree of distance so that he can have a degree of deniability. And so that I do think, you know, there's a real question for the Biden administration, not only about whether they want to call him on that, but on how they demonstrate that calling him on that is the right thing to do. Just to interject one thing before Ben makes his point. I mean, it strikes me that you're, you're absolutely right with the Wagner group. I mean, that, that's a great example of do we hold the Russian government accountable? In the past, though, what we have done is launch military strikes on members of the Wagner group. So we've killed them. Right. And I mean, so this, I guess, does raise a question. Maybe, Ben, you want to get at this in your thoughts of, you know, is there a way to hold Russian criminal organizations accountable separate from whether the Russian government wants to do anything or not? I mean, I I raised this sort of flip point in a previous podcast of like, you know, how long till we just like drone these guys? But, you know, is there sort of a response that basically we can take that doesn't really depend on the Russian government's cooperation or acquiescence? Ben. Yeah, so I I think Tamara has rightly laid out the parameters of the pure understandings. That is, some people want to treat this as a a state-to-state relations issue. Some people want to treat it as a series of criminal enforcement issues, right? Some people want to treat it as a issue for cybercom, right? Can you can we just take down some of these things? And you saw Cybercom do some of that in the information space around the election, right? You know, the Internet Research Agency went dark a little bit. So, uh, and then, of course, I think the more sophisticated people within the government understand that these are tools that have to operate in conjunction with one another. And so, 
this is sometimes called the all tools approach, which is a phrase I hate, both because what government doesn't use all its tools, that's done, like, and secondly, because every time I hear it, I think it's it's a t- approach in which we all become tools. I, I just, so I hate the all tools name, but the idea that that you are, and, and I prefer to think of it as a sort of integrated policy response where you're using the various levers of power that you have available to you. If you can get custody of these people, you want to prosecute them. If you can seize their assets through, you know, various OFAC measures, you want to do that. If you can put pressure on the Russian government to either extradite them or to uh, force them to curtail their activities, you want to do that as well. And if you have opportunities to use military authorities to take down criminal networks, you know, you're going to want to do that too under certain circumstances. And so I, I guess I do think the these these tools are often framed in terms of, you know, in exclusion from one another. That is, oh, I'm a supporter of the cyber enforcement model, or I'm a supporter of a military model. And in fact, we're using all of them. The question is in what balance and how do you array these arsenals of weapons that you have in the fashion that is maximally effective? That's a very complicated set of questions, but I think it's really realistically, it's the right way to think about it. And something I thought about, and this is, you know, maybe we don't have an answer to this yet, but Biden and Putin met, obviously, they brought this up. I mean, there was a pretty strong response to the um, colonial pipeline hack insofar as the Justice Department went back and was able to kind of go through cryptocurrency and claw back some of the ransom, which I thought revealed some pretty interesting capabilities on the part of the Justice Department. The fact that this ransomware, most recently Kessia attack, and now the attack on the contractor has occurred post those warnings from the Biden administration, should we read that as Vladimir Putin is not taking seriously these warnings? Should we read it as maybe he doesn't have the control that we think over some of these groups? Or, 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 or can we not really infer anything from that yet? So I think that it's a question of interpretation. And as I said at the outset, fundamentally, how you interpret Putin's lack of response um, or the fact that these attacks went forward after that meeting um, depends on your broader understanding of the Russian regime under Putin and the relationship between the Russian regime and these criminal cyber criminal actors. You know, if you believe that that's a tight relationship, if you believe that the Russian regime is, you know, fundamentally itself in some way a criminal or corrupt enterprise, um, then you're going to see it as willful, as Putin testing. Uh, If you see it as a looser connection between these entities, then you might say Putin has a harder, perhaps he's having a harder time gaining control or exercising control, or it'll just take a while to stop this rolling ball. But I think it goes back to the fundamental analytical judgment, or maybe even ideological judgment. And I think we just don't have, at least where I sit here, sufficient facts to judge. Ben, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think the 
best way to understand it. And and there's a there's a complexity here that you know we don't know at least I don't know precisely when this mal this ransomware operation was launched and conducted. We know when it was announced, right? But do we really know that this was before Biden and Putin had had this meeting? But I think we can, at at a minimum, say that it is not like Vladimir Putin did not come out and say this is unacceptable for any Russia-based organization to be involved with this. We are going to, you know, conduct a very serious investigation in partnership with the Americans. And we will, of course, take action against any Russian entity that is found to be involved in. That's not what he did. And in that sense, I completely agree with Tamara that it's best understood as, you know, him testing Biden's resolve in this regard. He's trying to say, you've promised a certain set of costs. I want to see if you're actually capable of delivering them and capable technically, capable politically, capable uh, in terms of your metal versus mine. And I I think given what Biden has said uh, after the summit in Geneva about the message he communicated, he will look extremely weak and feckless if he does not exact a significant cost to the Russians for this. Now, what that means, I don't know. I mean, it could be, you know, whether it's a bunch of indictments where you don't have custody of the people, whether it's, you know, kind of a bunch of takedowns. But I do think the pressure is on to do something substantial enough to justify the warning you communicated in Geneva. All right, let us move on to our object lessons. One big lesson, this object lesson, I guess my object lesson actually could be, it could be January, 2015. Because as loyal listeners of the podcast may remember, it was in January, 2015, if my math is right, if my books are accurate, I have to check my private books. Check the internal books though, yeah. Check the internal books. Uh, We had the very first episode of Rational Security. That was episode one. Uh, It is now July 7th, 2021. So this is six and a half years later. Do I have that right if I'm doing my math right? Uh, And we have a big announcement, which is with heavy hearts, we have decided that this great run and this great fun on this podcast, which we have loved doing and sharing with our wonderful community of listeners, it is time to bring it to an end. Not today. (laughs) So don't get too yeah, sad. Yeah, we're never doing rational security. That's the end. It's over. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, but we have made the decision that uh, we will uh, end the podcast two weeks from today on July 21st. We're going to do another episode next week on the 14th, a regular episode. And then on the 21st, we're going to have, I guess it's our special farewell episode. But this has been this, the decision after long discussion, obviously, uh, uh, you know, we all uh, felt a loss of, of Susan as well uh, and what we've been carrying on. But we've just kind of concluded, at least from my point of view, and then I want Ben and Tammy to talk, that this has been a really successful, rewarding personally for me to be able to interact with these brilliant, smart people who are also my good friends uh, for so long. And we kind of, I want to go out on a high note and we feel like we're 
ready for some new projects. There may be some new exciting things happening in the future, but that this one has had a great run and it felt like a natural time to sort of bring it into port. But Tammy, tell us, tell us your thoughts. Oh, my thoughts. Um, Look, I mean, the dynamic between the four of us, although it started, as you know, with just the three of us, has been amazing. And getting to hang out with you guys for an hour every week and talk these things over has been amazing. I've learned so much from all of you. It's been a chance to integrate new ideas and and kind of think beyond my own expertise. But mostly, mostly, what's been amazing is building a community with our listeners. You know, the the thousands of you out there all over the world. And so when I, you know, before COVID, when I would go out to do public speaking in California or in Ohio, and I would meet people who listen to the podcast. So it was always an incredible kick. And just knowing that you were out there listening, hearing from you over Twitter, hearing from you in the reviews, even those of you who thought the female voices were too loud, it's been great. And so I think that part of what's important to me is that the show be something that you really gain from and value and appreciate. And I think if we're at the point where we feel like, you know, we've done the best we can and now it's time to move on, then, you know, we don't want to give you less than our best, but I will miss all of you. Um, yeah. So, for your thoughts? so I want to, go back to the origin story of rational security because the origin story involves Shane and Jen Patya Howell, who the three of us got together and decided to start a podcasting company. It was not law under lawfare. Then we decided to start a podcasting company in which we would throw a whole lot of spaghetti at the wall and see what stuck from a listener point of view. And the theory was super low production values with super high substance individuals. That was the theory of spaghetti on the wall. And the spaghetti on the wall that stuck was rational security. Spaghetti on the wall productions did some really cool other shows, but the one that worked, the one that really stuck was rational security. And so two things happened, I think, that, that made that a reality, or three, actually. The first was that we had a host who was super committed to it, week in, week out. And Shane, you know, these things only work if you have somebody who really wants to do them and uh, who really is, whose heart's really in it, week in, week out. I, I don't know... I don't think I've ever said this before, but you know, no one's ever been paid for making rational security. This is just something that Shane has done because it's fun and because it's a way of, I think because it's a way for all of us to organize our thoughts on a bunch of subjects every week in dialogue with each other and with the audience. And then the second thing that happened was we didn't originally imagine this as a four-person show. We imagined it as a three-person show and so we decided uh, who would be a person, the person to kind of the right person to broaden it. And we thought 
oh, we know a cool Brookings person who would be fun to do a show with. And uh, that was how Tamara got involved in the show. Uh, and then when Susan came to Brookings, probably about a, was probably a year later or something, Rational Security was three people for a year before it became four people. So the, the second thing that happened was we added two people who was one from the beginning of the show and one a few months in who were just, you know, there was a great chemistry between the bunch of us. And one of the things that I think we've all been struck by since Susan left is, you know, when John married Yoko, you know, you had to decide, are you going to, are you going to break up the Beatles or are you just going to like, you know, find a new John Lennon? Um, And so I, I think there was a sense that we were, this show had kind of reached its peak of importance and value to people during the Trump administration and now it was a good time to think about what the other podcast projects that we want to do uh, look like. And I want to reassure everybody that Shane will not be leaving the law, the Lawfare Greater Cinematic Universe, but has agreed to uh, play a fun role on the Lawfare podcast, which Shane, why don't you uh, tell us a little about? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I love the idea that Merrick Garland is like our Yoko Ono. But she took Susan. Took Susan. You know, um, <laughs> the ba- the ballad of Merrick and and Susan. Totally, totally. Excellent. That's so good. Um, so yes, that is right, and I'm super excited about this. Um, uh, and we'll get this rolling probably when the summer's over. I would guess as we get some stuff in the pipeline. But my idea and kind of ambition, which I you know, I pitched at Ben, and he, I'm very grateful that he agreed. Is I want to kind of take things that I do in object lessons, particularly where national security and popular culture intersect. So where I bring you guys like a cool new show that I'm watching or a book that I've read that I think is interesting and exciting for the readers. And I want to do a podcast about that. So I want to go interview those people and talk to those people. You know, there are people who uh, uh, I won't name shows because I don't want to uh, embarrass myself if their creators say no. But there are some shows that I really love whose creators I would love to have on a podcast and talk to them about how they made their show and, and you know, the things that they tried to get right about national security and foreign policy. Um, there are book authors. There are novelists. There are all kinds of people that are doing interesting things in this space, uh, these two places where they intersect. And so it's my hope to, you know, every few weeks or so have a conversation with those folks and do it under the banner uh, of Lawfare. Uh, and I think that would be great fun, certainly for me. <laughs> I hope it would be really fun for the listeners too, but I know I'm going to enjoy it. And uh, I will be happy to show up on Lawfare panels and other podcasts from time to time as that opportunity warrants. So yes, you're, you're not getting rid of me. You will just see me playing different roles, perhaps. Ben. So one other administrative point, I know I'm going to get flooded with questions about what is going to happen to the rational security feed. And the answer is, we don't know yet. We will not let it die. We will do something on this feed, probably also starting in September. And so stay tuned for more news about that. And don't delete your rational security feeds. Finally, one other thing. I went back to the Brookings office yesterday for the first time in a very long time 
there was a package addressed to the rational security crew care of me, which contained a bottle of Glenlivet, and it's it's a special bottle of Glenlivet. It's the Glenlivet Enigma, and it is a distinctive bottle of scotch, actually. I've never seen one like it. It's over 120 proof. That is more than 60% alcohol. It's the strongest scotch I've ever tasted. And it contained no it contained a note that just said cheers. It did not say who it was from. So if you are the person who sent the Glenlivet Enigma to the Rational Security Gang, on behalf of the Rational Security Gang, thank you. Uh, we uh, don't know who you are, but we sure appreciate the Glenlivet Enigma. We sure do. And that's another reminder, we do have the greatest fans in the world. Thank you. And I look forward to having a shot of that myself. But that's it for this week. We're sorry to end this week's episode on a bit of a downer. We will be talking to you next week and the week after that, of course. So we have some time to get used to this. Uh, but in the meantime, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare and formerly Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find um, morning clothes, vials for teardrops at Lawfare. Sackcloth or... and ashes. <laughs> That's it. That's it. R-A-P, ratsec.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can still find us on Facebook. Maybe we'll just stay on Facebook forever. What the hell? Just leave the page up. Just leave it there like a tombstone. Um, you can follow when you download the podcast for the next two weeks anyway. Uh, please be sure to leave a rating and review. And remember, do keep the channel on because more things are going to be coming on Rational Security. What exactly? We don't know. But tell your friends now. Tell them now that there's only two more weeks. It's like a clearance sale. Everything must go. Share the podcast feed now while you can. Our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week, this is a very deep cut, you guys. Ready? It's a Francois Truffaut impersonator using a speaking spell to play the Imperial March. Whoa. <laughs> There's three movies in that. There's three movies in that. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but if you know them, just, you know, tweet them at RATL Security. <laughs> It's good. It's good. I bet Sophia Yainos does. She could play a speaking spell as easily. Well, maybe not as easily as a piano, but I bet very well. On behalf of my very good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.